Welcome to Nightfall Narratives, the podcast that goes where shadows and stories intersect to explore the eerie and enigmatic. Join us as we journey into the heart of the unknown, immersing ourselves in tales of suspense and terror. In each episode, we'll either read a spine-tingling tale, or we'll take a closer look at the art of writing, unraveling the mysteries of storycraft that make such tales so eerily effective. So, sit back, relax, and feel the embrace of the mysterious as we embark on this journey into the heart of the night. Welcome, yet again, to another episode of Nightfall Narratives. I'm your Nightfall narrator, R. Douglas Patton. In this episode, we'll read chapters 2 and 3 of the classic tale, The Willows, by Algernon Blackwood, thus continuing our story. Be sure to stick around for the follow-up episode, as we'll discuss the concept of fragility of the individual in the face of ancient and mystical forces. We'll also discuss how you can implement this concept in your own storycraft. So, without any further fanfare, Nightfall Narratives presents The Willows by Algernon Blackwood Chapter 2 Suddenly, I found myself lying awake, peering from my sandy mattress through the door of the tent. I looked at my watch, pinned against the canvas, and saw by the bright moonlight that it was past twelve o'clock, the threshold of a new day, and I had therefore slept a couple of hours. The Swede was asleep still beside me. The wind howled as before, something plucked at my heart, and made me feel afraid. There was a sense of disturbance in my immediate neighborhood. I sat up quickly and looked out. The trees were swaying violently to and fro as the gusts smote them, but our little bit of green canvas lay snugly safe in the hollow, for the wind passed over it without meeting enough resistance to make it vicious. The feeling of disquietude did not pass, however, and I crawled quietly out of the tent to see if our belongings were safe. I moved carefully so as not to waken my companion. A curious excitement was on me. I was halfway out, kneeling on all fours when my eye first took in that the tops of the bushes opposite, with their moving tracery of leaves, made shapes against the sky. I sat back on my haunches and stared. It was incredible, surely, but there, opposite and slightly above me, were shapes of some indeterminate sort among the willows, and as the branches swayed in the wind they seemed to group themselves about these shapes forming a series of monstrous outlines that shifted rapidly beneath the moon. Close, about fifty feet in front of me, I saw these things. My first instinct was to waken my companion, that he too might see them, but something made me hesitate. The sudden realization, probably, that I should not welcome corroboration, and meanwhile I crouched there staring in amazement with smarting eyes. I was wide awake. I remember saying to myself that I was not dreaming. They first became properly visible, these huge figures, just within the tops of the bushes, immense, bronze-colored, moving, and wholly independent of the swaying of the branches. I saw them plainly and noted, now I came to examine them more calmly, 
that they were very much larger than human, and indeed that something in their appearance proclaimed them to not be human at all. Certainly they were not merely the moving tracery of the branches against the moonlight. They shifted independently. They rose upwards in a continuous stream from earth to sky, vanishing utterly as soon as they reached the dark of the sky. They were interlaced, one with another, making a great column, and I saw their limbs and huge bodies melting in and out of each other, forming this serpentine line that bent and swayed and twisted spirally with the contortions of the wind-tossed trees. They were nude, fluid shapes, passing up the bushes, within the leaves almost, rising up in a living column into the heavens. Their faces I never could see. Unceasingly they poured upwards, swaying in great bending curves, with a huge dull bronze upon their skins. I stared, trying to force every atom of vision from my eyes. For a long time I thought they must every moment disappear and resolve themselves into the movements of the branches, and prove to be an optical illusion. I searched everywhere for a proof of reality, when all the while I understood quite well that the standard of reality had changed. For the longer I looked, the more certain I became that these figures were real and living, though perhaps not according to the standards that the camera and the biologist would insist upon. Far from feeling fear, I was possessed with a sense of awe and wonder such as I have never known. I seemed to be gazing at the personified elemental forces of this haunted and primeval region. Our intrusion had stirred the powers of the place into activity. It was we who were the cause of the disturbance, and my brain filled to bursting with stories and legends of the spirits and deities of places that have been acknowledged and worshipped by men in all ages of the world's history. But, before I could arrive at any possible explanation, something impelled me to go farther out and I crept forward on the sand and stood upright. I felt the ground still warm under my bare feet. The wind tore at my hair and face, and the sound of the river burst upon my ears with a sudden roar. These things, I knew, were real, and proved that my senses were acting normally. Yet the figures still rose from earth to heaven, silent, majestically, in a great spiral of grace and strength that overwhelmed me at length with a genuine deep emotion of worship. I felt that I must fall down and worship, absolutely worship. Perhaps in another minute I might have done so, when a gust of wind swept against me with such force that it blew me sideways, and I nearly stumbled and fell. It seemed to shake the dream violently out of me. At least it gave me another point of view somehow. The figures still remained still ascended into heaven from the heart of the night. But my reason at last began to assert itself. It must be a subjective experience, I argued. Nonetheless real for that, but still subjective. The moonlight and the branches combined to work out these pictures upon the mirror of my imagination, and for some reason I projected them outwards and made them appear objective. I knew this must be the case, of course. I took courage and began to move forward across the open patches of sand. By Jove, though, was it a hallucination? 
Was it merely subjective? Did not my reason argue in the old futile way from the little standard of the known? I only know that great column of figures ascended darkly into the sky for what seemed a very long period of time, and with a very complete measure of reality as most men are accustomed to gauge reality. Then suddenly, they were gone. And once they were gone and the immediate wonder of their great presence had passed, fear came down upon me with a cold rush. The esoteric meaning of this lonely and haunted region suddenly flamed up within me, and I began to tremble dreadfully. I took a quick look around, a look of horror that came near to panic, calculating vainly ways of escape, and then, realizing how helpless I was to achieve anything really effective, I crept back silently into the tent and lay down again upon my sandy mattress, first lowering the door curtain to shut out the sight of the willows in the moonlight, and then burying my head as deeply as possible beneath the blankets to deaden the sound of the terrifying wind. Chapter 3 As though further to convince me that I had not been dreaming, I remember that it was a long time before I fell again into a troubled and restless sleep, and even then only the upper crust of me slept, and underneath there was something that never quite lost consciousness, but lay alert and on the watch. But this second time I jumped up with a genuine start of terror. It was neither the wind nor the river that woke me, but the slow approach of something that caused the sleeping portion of me to grow smaller and smaller, till at last it vanished altogether, and I found myself sitting bolt upright, listening. Outside there was a sound of multitudinous little patterings. They had been coming, I was aware, for a long time, and in my sleep they had first become audible. I sat there, nervously wide awake as though I had not slept at all. It seemed to me that my breathing came with difficulty, and that there was a great weight upon the surface of my body. In spite of the hot night, I felt clammy with cold and shivered. Something surely was pressing steadily against the sides of the tent, and weighing down upon it from above. Was it the body of the wind? Was this the pattering rain, the dripping of the leaves? The spray blown from the river by the wind and gathering in big drops? I thought quickly of a dozen things. Then suddenly the explanation leaped into my mind. A bough from the poplar, the only large tree on the island, had fallen with the wind, still half caught by the other branches. It would fall with the next gust and crush us and meanwhile its leaves brushed and tapped upon the tight canvas surface of the tent. I raised a loose flap and rushed out, calling to the Swede to follow. But when I got out and stood upright, I saw that the tent was free. There was no hanging bough. There was no rain or spray. Nothing approached. A cold, gray light filtered down through the bushes and lay on the faintly gleaming sand. Stars still crowded the sky directly overhead, and the wind howled magnificently, but the fire no longer gave out any glow, and I saw the east reddening in streaks through the trees. Several hours must have passed since I stood there before watching the ascending figures, and the memory of it now came back to me horribly, 
like an evil dream. Oh, how tired it made me feel, that ceaseless raging wind. Yet, though the deep lassitude of a sleepless night was on me, my nerves were tingling with the activity of an equally tireless apprehension, and all idea of repose was out of the question. The river I saw had risen further, its thunder filled the air, and a fine spray made itself felt through my thin sleeping shirt. Yet nowhere did I discover the slightest evidence of anything to cause alarm. This deep, prolonged disturbance in my heart remained wholly unaccounted for. My companion had not stirred when I called him, and there was no need to waken him now. I looked about me carefully, noting everything. The turned-over canoe, the yellow paddles, two of them, I'm certain. The provision sack and the extra lantern hanging together from the tree, and crowding everywhere about me enveloping all, the willows, those endless, shaking willows. A bird uttered its morning cry, and a string of duck passed with whirring flight overhead in the twilight. The sand world, dry and stinging, about my bare feet in the wind. I walked round the tent and then went out a little way into the bush, so that I could see across the river to the farther landscape and the same profound yet indefinable motion of distress seized upon me again as I saw the interminable sea of bushes stretching to the horizon, looking ghostly and unreal in the wane light of dawn. I walked softly here and there, still puzzling over that odd sound of infinite pattering, and of that pressure upon the tent that had wakened me. It must have been the wind, I reflected, the wind bearing upon the loose, hot sand, driving the dry particles smartly against the taut canvas, the wind dropping heavily upon our fragile roof. Yet, all the time, my nervousness and malaise increased appreciably. I crossed over to the farther shore and noted how the coastline had altered in the night, and what masses of sand the river had torn away. I dipped my hands and feet into the cool current and bathed my forehead. Already there was a glow of sunrise in the sky and the exquisite freshness of coming day. On my way back I passed purposefully beneath the very bushes where I had seen the columns of figures rising into the air, and midway among the clumps I suddenly found myself overtaken by a sense of vast terror. From the shadows a large figure went swiftly by. Someone passed me, as sure as ever man did. It was a great staggering blow from the wind that helped me forward again, and once out in the more open space, the sense of terror diminished, strangely. The winds were about and walking. I remember saying to myself, for the winds often move like great presences under the trees, and altogether the fear that hovered about me was such an unknown and immense kind of fear, so unlike anything I had ever felt before, that it woke a sense of awe and wonder in me that did much to counteract its worst effects. And when I reached a high point in the middle of the island from which I could see the wide stretch of river, crimson in the sunrise, the whole magical beauty of it all was so overpowering that a sort of wild yearning woke in me and almost brought up a cry up into the throat. But this cry found no expression, for as my eyes wandered from the plain beyond to the island round me, and noted our little tent half-hidden among the willows, a dreadful discovery leaped out at me. 
compared to which my terror of the walking winds seemed as nothing at all. For a change, I thought, had somehow come about in the arrangement of the landscape. It was not that my point of vantage gave me a different view, but that an alteration had apparently been effected in the relation of the tent to the willows, and of the willows to the tent. Surely the bushes now crowded much closer, unnecessarily, unpleasantly close. They had moved nearer, creeping with silent feet over the shifting sands, drawing imperceptibly nearer by soft, unhurried movements. The willows had come closer during the night. But had the wind moved them, or had they moved of themselves? I recalled the sound of infinite small patterings, and the pressure upon the tent and upon my own heart that caused me to wake in terror. I swayed for a moment in the wind like a tree, finding it hard to keep my upright position on the sandy hillock. There was a suggestion here of personal agency, of deliberate intention, of aggressive hostility, and it terrified me into a sort of rigidity. Then the reaction followed quickly. The idea was so bizarre, so absurd, that I felt inclined to laugh, but the laughter came no more readily than the cry. For the knowledge that my mind was so receptive to such dangerous imaginings brought the additional terror that it was through our minds and not through our physical bodies that the attack would come. And it was coming. The wind buffeted me about, and, very quickly it seemed, the sun came up over the horizon, for it was after four o'clock, and I must have stood on that little pinnacle of sand longer than I knew afraid to come down to close quarters with the willows. I returned quietly, creepily, to the tent, first taking another exhaustive look round and, yes, I confess it, making a few measurements. I paced out on the warm sand the distances between the willows and the tent, making a note of the shortest distance particularly. I crawled stealthily into my blankets. My companion, to all appearances, still slept soundly, and I was glad that this was so. Provided my experiences were not corroborated, I could find strength somehow to deny them, perhaps. With the daylight I could persuade myself that it was all a subjective hallucination, a fantasy of the night, a projection of the excited imagination. Nothing further came in to disturb me, and I fell asleep almost at once, utterly exhausted yet still in dread of hearing again that weird sound of multitudinous pattering, or of feeling the pressure upon my heart that had made it difficult to breathe. As the shadows lengthen and the night falls, we come to the end of another episode of Nightfall Narratives. We hope you found our exploration of dark and mysterious storytelling and the art of writing thought-provoking and haunting. Remember, the stories we tell have the power to both chill us to the bone and inspire us to create our own. Join us again for our next episode, and until then, keep your eyes open and your mind curious, for anything is possible.